Would you open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 9? Uh, we're going to study the entire chapter this morning. You'll see why as we read it. In John 8, last Sunday, uh, we studied how Jesus came to set free those who were enslaved to sin. And this morning, we're going to learn how he came so that the blind can receive sight. Not just miraculously, not just for physical eyes to receive sight. That's really secondary compared to having sin-blinded eyes opened to behold the glory and beauty and majesty of the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's a sight to see. So as we read this, I'm going, to just, I'm going to stop at just two points just to highlight something for just a moment, just to pause. That's the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see the whole chapter, but, but a couple of points in particular. And as we read, no, don't only notice what happens to the blind man. Notice also the response to the Pharisees, the Pharisees' response to Jesus. Notice the blind man's response to Jesus. But notice the Pharisees' response to Jesus. And I would even ask you as we begin this this morning, are you willing to admit that you still need help seeing? Even if you've been a Christian, are you willing to admit that you don't see it all? That there are blind spots in every Christian's life. Are you willing to admit, God, there are parts of my life that I'm still blind as far as your goodness and your grace. Open my eyes today. And if you're visiting us here and you're just exploring, wondering about Christianity, would you be willing to just humble yourselves to say, Lord, I, I may not see how valuable Jesus is compared to maybe somebody else in this room, but I'm willing to see if he is real. Let's read the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ as given by John in John chapter 9. As he, as Jesus passed by, he saw a blind man, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now that's the stopping point. Could I just have your eyes for a minute? Every sorrow, every bit of suffering, this verse addresses. Why did this happen? So that the glorious works of God could be put on display. And that will be a better answer than any conceivable answer that you've had for your problems. Oh God, help me to see that this morning. That in my troubles, it's a stage for you to display your glorious work in my life. Help me to see it. Help me to see it. Verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and he came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. I went, I washed, I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought, to the, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. 
Well, the Jews did not believe that he'd been, been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son, that he was born blind, but how he sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner, they're speaking of Jesus. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've already told you that. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you, do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. <laughs> and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, oh, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. This is the place where who is the blindest of the blind among us? And isn't it those who think they see and they have no need for help? Verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see, air quotes, may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, oh, your guilt remains. As we pray, let's remember to pray for Eric. Eric is in uh, San Antonio at our sister church, uh, preaching there this morning uh, with Philip Estrada. Philip, Philip was raised up in this church. The Lord saved him when he was about 13 years old in this church, and now he's the senior pastor of that church. And it's just sweet. Is that sweet? So let's remember to pray for Eric as well. Well, Lord, this text just prays. It's, it really informs our prayer. For those who have come to know you as Lord and Savior, we couldn't say thank you enough for opening our blind eyes so that we could behold the most beautiful sight we could ever hope to see. And that's Jesus and him crucified for our sins. But Lord, we want to see him more clearly. Just as the sight of this man seemed to, the, the, his, his clarity of who Jesus was seemed to get stronger as the days went on. Oh God, would you help us to see more clearly in the days ahead? To see Jesus more clearly. And for those who have never experienced the joy and the forgiveness, and the hope of a future, and, and, and peace from God through faith in Jesus Christ and the price he paid for their sins. 
Would you open their eyes with this word today? For your glory and for their joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've, I've told you many times before how thankful I am for my wife, Jan. I'm going to tell you again today. <laughs> uh, this Wednesday, we celebrate our 37th wedding anniversary. Um, yeah, that's... <laughs> that, thank you for that. That's yay Jesus and yay Jan. Because um, uh, Jonathan Edwards' wife wrote a book called uh, uh, Married to a Difficult Man. <laughs> and I think Jan could have written Married to a Difficult Man 2.0. I, I really think that. Next to Jesus, Jan is the greatest gift of grace that God has ever given me. Again and again, and she's sick today, so she's watching. I love you, babe. Her steadfast faith and her abundant joy in the Lord encourage my heart and inspire me. They inspire me to keep seeking first the kingdom of God. Isn't that what a husband and wife really God intended the marriage to be? That we would be not requiring things of each other, inspiring each other to seek first the kingdom of God. There's another reason why I'm so thankful to Jan. God used her. A few of you know know this. God used her to diagnose a horrible condition that I suffer from. Let me describe the symptoms. I go to the refrigerator to get an apple. I open the door. And I stand there for about 15 minutes looking into the refrigerator to find the apple. And I cannot find the apple. 15 minutes I'm staring into that that refrigerator. And now the alarm, the refrigerator alarm, right? It starts ringing and ringing. And finally, it brings me to a place of realizing I I need help. (laughs) So I call Jan. And she comes and she looks into the refrigerator. And probably less than 15 seconds, she finds the apple. Jan coined the name of my condition by borrowing from the language used from another male malady called male pattern baldness. Have you ever heard of that? Male pattern baldness. She says the reason I can't find things is because I have male pattern blindness. (laughs) And come to find out, okay, so the wives in the room, come to find out I'm not the only man who suffers from it. Can I get an amen? Amen. That was a little weak, amen, but it was, you know, pretty, that's okay. Your husband's sitting next to you, so I know you're not wanting to embarrass him. Um, (laughs) But I told her, well, honey, this is another reason why God said that he who has found a wife has found a good thing. Because he he finds favor in God's sight. And one of the favors I'm getting from God is that you keep me from starving to death. I mean, you find food in the refrigerator so that I won't starve to death. And... Well, as you saw in today's text, uh, the point in all that is I'm I'm blind still in so many ways in my life, uh, and I need help seeing. Do you? Do you? As you saw in today's text, we're dealing with blindness, but not the physical, not, not just the physical kind. In fact, that's really not the main point of the text. There's lots of points that we, we believe in God's power to heal, and we're going to talk about that in this in, in this sermon, but that's not the main point of the text. It's talking about a spiritual blindness. One other point that, do you notice that this man has no name? There's a whole chapter devoted to this man, and there's no name given to this man. There's another blind man that was healed named Bartimaeus. Remember, blind Bartimaeus. And he, had, he was given a name, but why not this? Why no name? And, and I read several things, and I thought, this is so good. This man has no name because this man is every man. <laughs> not every male. <laughs> So it's not, not male pattern blindness that's stuff I'm talking about here. This man is every human being. That's what, he's, that's what is so profound about this chapter. This, there's a blindness of a spiritual kind. So I'm going to use some of those phrasings that Jan taught me. I'm going to call this Adam pattern blindness. Adam pattern blindness. Because we're all born with this blindness. 
We're born dead in sin. We're born filled with pride. And we're blinded by that sinful pride to deny our need for Christ as Lord and Savior. The chapter will start out with Jesus healing a, a blindness that is of a physical kind. But remember, so remember, so important, guys, how we study God's word. The, the gospel of John has purpose and intent in how God uniquely gave this word to John. And, and the aspect of, of telling the story of Jesus' sinless life, substitutionary death, victorious resurrection, and how John brings out angles of that story that are precious and we need. And so you remember there are seven signs in the book of John. And, and they tend to be miraculous signs. One of them is Jesus walking on water, the, the fish and the loaves, and just on and on, the healing of the paralytic. There are, there are sign after sign after sign. But again, think about a sign. A sign doesn't exist for you to just become worshipers of the sign. Wouldn't that be just so goofy matoofy if we were driving to Dallas and, and, and we're starting with 300 miles away and we finally get to 150 miles away and we're so relieved that it's only 150 miles away that we stop right there and just worship the 150 miles to go sign. A sign points to where it, it, we're going. It's pointing us to a destination. So these, this sign of a miracle is pointing to something better than the miracle. So I hope you can hear that and see that today. This is the sixth of the seven signs in the Gospel of John. So it's not just about a miracle, but for what God is teaching us about Christ and what God is teaching us about our hearts through the miracle. That's what's happening here. Uh, uh, he's teaching us something about Jesus that would help us to believe in him as Lord and Savior, which is the greatest miracle of all miracles. So just as this blind man, would, would, blind man would have never found Jesus unless Jesus found him first, we who are blinded by our sin would never find Jesus unless he found us first and opened our eyes first to see our sinfulness and to see the greatness of his love in paying the penalty for our sins through his death on the cross. So that for the rest of time, that the beauty that we see in Jesus would just get more beautiful and more beautiful and more beautiful. For those of you who have been a believer for a while, is that, the, could that, is that your testimony? Jesus is more beautiful to me now than he was five years ago. And if not, why not? Could it be, not that maybe, not, I'm not saying you've lost salvation or anything like that. We don't believe you could lose salvation. I believe somebody could never, could, could have an, a mental acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord and Savior and yet never truly be saved. Um, but it, could it be that you've been allowing some blind spots to so dominate your life, you don't even realize that it's numbing your heart and it's, it's restricting your vision to the beauty of Jesus. And isn't it great to know Jesus paid the price for that too? And isn't it great to know that Jesus would love to open your eyes a little, more, a little wider today to see him even more beautifully than you, than you ever have? So the main point this morning is Jesus does the most wonderful of his works when he opens our sin-blinded eyes to see him as Savior and Lord. So point number one, our problem, we're blinded by sin from birth. Verse 1, Jesus escapes those who wanted to stone him, and he sees a man who was blind from birth, had no one to care for him, no one to hire him, because he was blind, so he becomes a beggar. The blind man does not find Jesus. Jesus finds the blind man. This is why we sing, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I Amen. Amen. So that's a preview of what we're, we're um, going to learn uh, about Jesus, the good shepherd. That's, that's the, the, the way John is written is so brilliant. Because right here, we're getting a taste of what the good shepherd is like when he seeks out his sheep. So cool. Eric is going to preach chapter 10 next week about the good shepherd. Verse 2, the disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Wow. Okay, let's deal with that. The disciples' first response to seeing this blind man doesn't first seem to be very compassionate. They don't seem to see a person in need. They seem to be a... They seem to see a problem to be solved. They don't see his sufferings 
they just want to focus on his sins. You ever been to a church like that? I don't know what God's doing with our future, but for whatever reason, he's bringing people to worship with us. What do we see when we see the crowd? Are our hearts moved with compassion? Or do, you, or do you sometimes start to go, oh man, more people, more problems. Oh, oh. blind spot, right? <laughs> blind spot. Lord, help us see people for how we can serve people. Not, not for their problems or for their sins. So if you're here and your life is filled with sin and suffering or sorrow, welcome. We're not going to summarize you by the total of your sins. We're going to want to seek for you to be set free from those sins and to be loved every step of the way. How about an amen there? Amen. That's not for me. That's for everybody here. That's... Too often, I think, when we start seeing people this way, it's often to really excuse ourselves from helping them. Well, they want an explanation for this man's blindness. What, what is it in the past that caused the blindness? Is this blindness a punishment for the parent's sin or a punishment for his own sin? And the disciples come across this question really pretty honestly. It was a common question of the day, a common argument amongst the rabbis, very, one of the favorite arguments amongst the rabbis. Some rabbis argued that a child in the womb could sin. And you kind of go, oh, come on, where do they get that? They, they actually had a proof text for it. Remember when Esau and Jacob wrestled in the, in the womb? And they said, oh, you see, they were sinning. They were fighting in the womb. And how can we prove it? Because Jacob was holding on to Esau's heel when he was coming out of the womb. Remember? Right? So that's, that's their proof text for that. Um, or more likely, the argument that really probably had more people saying is, no, no. It was his parents. It's those parents. We're going to talk about that for a minute because I think that's something we need to talk about in our culture. It's the parents who had committed the sin that led to his blindness. It's really not that far off of how we think today. And it's not just, not just in, in terms of Christianity, just about any religion. Uh, this has a philosophy that goes like this. Bad things happen to bad people, right? Good things happen to good people. And if there is a heaven, it's, it's a place where good people go to get good things. And if there's a hell, it's a place where bad people go to get bad things things, the things they deserve. It's an old argument, guys. This, this argument that, that if you're suffering, it has to be because of specific sin. Specific suffering has to be for specific sin. Personal suffering has to be for personal sin. And that's, that's where we get Job's friends, so-called friends. Man, have you ever had friends like Job? Listen to what Job's so-called friend Eliphaz, this is in your notes, he says to Job, remember, remember, who was that innocent was ever punished? Who was, who was ever innocent that was punished? Or, were the, or where were the upright cut off? He's saying, Job, would you admit that you're suffering because you sinned? You did something to deserve it. And Job was innocent. He was innocent. It's Listen, do you know that the righteous suffer? We can suffer because of specific sin. But not every specific sin it creates a specific suffering. The more likely argument was that uh, his parents had committed the sin that led to his blindness. Because all, I'm going to, this is quotes, right? This being somewhat facetious. Because we all know good parents have good and healthy kids, Right? Bad parents have bad and sick kids. As a dad who's on the, the other side of the day-to-day -day parenting life, can I just encourage you, please, don't let culture inform your parenting. Don't let legalism inform your parenting. Let the Bible inform your parenting. Let the grace of God inform your parenting. 
Otherwise, you're going to be living in guilt and shame. Otherwise, you're going to be, you're going to be making things worse by comparing your parenting and your kids to other parents and other kids. And it's just going to make things worse. God never intended to motivate you by guilt. He never intended to motivate you by shame. It is true that our sins and mistakes can certainly play a part in affecting our children's lives. But it does not make our children sinful. And it is true that our successes and good works can affect our children's lives. But those successes and good works don't have the power to save our children. Good parenting does not guarantee godly children. Our sins and mistakes do not sovereignly rule over our children and doom them. You know what does? God's sovereign grace rules over our children. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is able to overrule all of our sins and failures and mistakes. And for that, I'll say it. Amen. Amen. Because I'm just so much more aware of all my sins and mistakes than I am aware of anything right I did as a dad. And I'm so glad that my sins weren't sovereign in dooming my sons. God wants to use the lives of believing parents to illustrate God's love, for sure. God's correction, to illustrate God's correction, to illustrate God's consequences of sins, for sins. To illustrate God's readiness to forgive. To illustrate Christ laying down his life for sinners. To illustrate God's desire to save and satisfy our children's hearts in Jesus. But our good parenting doesn't save them. The great gospel of Christ saves them. That's what we live to do. That's what we exist for. To share with them again and again that old, old story. How a Savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. That's good parenting. If you need a reminder of this, I, I just, I had this in the notes and I took it out because it just takes too much time. Would you take, especially if you're a parent, would you read Ezekiel 18 verses 4 through 20? It starts out by saying the soul that sins shall die. And it's, it's really saying that a person's sin is on their own heads. No one makes them a sinner. We all inherited sinfulness. We all were born blind at birth, blinded by our sin, self-sufficient, um, self-seeking, self-centered. And all of that selfness blinded us. Uh, we, we, and it's really a self-imposed blindness. It's essentially we close our eyes to the light because we are the only light we need. We are the captain of our ship. That's, that's how blinded we are in all of those things. And it, and it tells the story how a godly dad can have an ungodly son. And, it's, and it doesn't blame the dad. That doesn't, the, the, the son's ungodliness does not say, oh, what a horrible dad that dad was. And then it says that an ungodly dad can have a godly son. I think it's important to read if you're a parent. Not only can we carry a lot of guilt and shame and loneliness and discouragement about this as parents, but I think we can get pretty self-righteous about how other parents seem to be doing raising their kids. That's the last place. The church is the last place that should be. A couple of thoughts to keep in mind. Good parents... And good kids are never as good as they look. Look at my life if you have to see. And bad parents and bad kids are never as bad as they look. Here's the golden rule of parenting. I'm, make, I'm making this golden rule up, okay? Um, encourage other parents and if they're open to it, help them with their children as you would want to be encouraged and helped with your own children. I think that's a golden rule. Scripture, so let's back to, back to the text. So it's, is it the parent who said, no, Jesus is, is saying it's not it's sin in the womb. It's not the sin of parents. Scripture does record instances in which specific sins resulted in specific suffering. 
How about Adam and Eve? <laughs> okay, there's, that's pretty specific. Miriam got leprosy because remember, she, crit- she was critical of God and Moses' leadership. Korah's rebellion and he, how he, here's one for the kids. Korah, listen, no, don't be disobedient because the earth opened up and swallowed him. <laughs> we need to tell those stories too, right? First Corinthians, New Testament example of, of people being sick and dying because they took part in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. But on most occasions, specific sin is not related to specific suffering. And if you want the best, you want the best example of how someone can suffer without being sinful, who, who is it? It's Jesus. He suffered not for any sins of his own. He suffered because of mine. He suffered because of mine so that I could become his child. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever had somebody say, the reason you're going through what you're going through is because you must have sinned? One, one of the, an example that sometimes can still haunt me about that. I, I've got acid reflux. Uh, it was so prevalent in my life for years. Uh, I just thought everybody had it what I had and you just took... Uh, you know, Tums. <laughs> it developed something called Barrett's esophagus, which is a precancerous condition. Doesn't say it will be cancerous, just says it could could grow into that. And I had someone come to tell me that that my reflux and my Barrett's esophagus was God's judgment on my life. Because I'm a false teacher, is what they said. I asked what they, what they thought was a false teaching, and they said, you teach the doctrines of grace. Especially, you teach that the total depravity of man, pervasive depravity, you teach that it necessitates that if there would ever be any hope of salvation, it would have to come from God's unconditional grace as the provider of it. And that is true. I believe that. And they said, if I die of esophageal cancer, it will be proof to others that I was a false teacher. Now, you're sitting there, you don't have Barrett's esophagus. You you don't have reflux that makes you hoarse. And and I I can be pretty self-condemning anyway. The problem of world hunger somehow must start with me. I'm I'm that kind of person. I can be pretty pretty proud in thinking that, that, oh, anyway. But when my voice does get hoarse because of, uh, of the reflux, there, there, there are times I just go, Lord, are you, is this a judgment upon me? I did that when my, I was parenting. God, is, is what my kid's suffering with, is that a judgment of my parenting? Please don't hold my kids responsible for, for my parenting. Well, Jesus said it's not that suffering... It it is not that suffering didn't come into the world because of sin. Sin brought suffering into the world, but it was Adam's sin. And that's what this is really going to get at. Let's remember, God's using this literal example of a man who was blind before birth, um, blind at birth, and Jesus' power to heal the man to tell us more than just that Jesus can heal the sick. God's using a physical example of this man being born blind from birth to point to us the worst problem of our lives. The worst problem of my life is not Barrett's esophagus. The worst problem in my life is not my, all my countless weaknesses or, or the things I wish I could do better. The worst problem in my life is that I was blinded by my sin. I had no ears to hear his voice. I didn't know of his love within. I had no taste of heaven's joys. But then his spirit gave me life, opened up his word to me, and the gospel of his son gave me life eternally. I don't know if that's the way the song ended, but, but I'm... But, but it rhymed. <laughs> so I just put that in there. That's my worst problem. That's your worst problem. In other words, we are, listen, in our blindness, spiritual blindness, it's not a morally innocent blindness. 
We inherit a sin nature from Adam that puts us in opposition to God from the beginning. Romans 1 says it. We all know God exists. And we're accountable to him for that. So if you're an unbeliever today, you, you are accountable, not first and foremost, your, your rejection of Jesus. You're going to hear the gospel today. You're going to be accountable for rejecting Jesus. But even before you came in here today, you were accountable that there is a holy and righteous God and you have to give an account to him. And you're going to be judged by your response to that. And Romans 1 says, we suppress that truth. We know he exists, and we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and, it, and we become futile in our thinking, and our foolish hearts were darkened, and here comes the blindness of sin. Though we had eyes that could physically see, those eyes see everything through a self-seeking and self-centered and self-satisfying and self-glorifying lens, and we turn away from God because we love the darkness. We want the darkness. We love the thought that somehow disobedience to God is our freedom. Our blindness to God is a sin-induced blindness. It's not an innocent blindness. This is a guilty blindness. And in verse 3, Jesus tells us that not only is the blindness for sin our greatest problem, but it also tells us that Jesus has come to do the wonderful works of God to be the greatest cure for our greatest disease. That's what's happening here. To rescue us from our worst enemy. A great savior to save us from our great sin. I can't remember which Puritan said it, but yeah, as he got older, he was nearing death and he said, my memory is fading, but one thing I remember, I'm a great sinner, but I have a great savior. Our hope is that Jesus' greatest work is to save us from our greatest problem. Jesus answered and he said, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Listen, so many people ask, why did God create man if he knew he was going to sin and that the punishment for that sin would be eternal death? I'm just going back way further than this illustration to begin with because I think this will help help us better understand the text. The answer is in this verse. There is an answer to that. Why did God create man if he knew man was going to sin? Well, here's the answer. God knew this and intended, had a purpose and a plan for it to be the most wonderful way he could demonstrate both his perfect justice and his perfect mercy. There is no more profound way that God could demonstrate his love for us than that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God gave his only begotten son to die the death we deserved, to be punished as though he were guilty of every sinful thought and every evil deed. What Satan intended for evil in the garden, getting Adam and Eve to eat from the, from the, the forbidden tree, God intended for good when his son died on the cursed tree. That's love. Why did God allow that? So that God could put his son on the cross to display. You wonder if he loves you? Oh my goodness. Wonder no more. Justice and mercy meet at the cross. All of the wrath of God fully exhausted and satisfied in the punishment of Jesus. All of the mercy and forgiveness of God flowing out like rivers of living water to us. Oh, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That's why, that's why, Stephen, all I have is Christ. Amen for that. This is the ultimate example of the fulfillment of what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis. As for you, you meant evil against me. God is not reacting. God didn't see somebody do something bad and God going, oh, I didn't see that coming. Okay, here's what I'll do. God's not a chess player. God's not just reacting to our our human depravity and foolishness and Satan's ploys. God is planning from before the foundations of the world to bring him glory and to bring his people joy all with Christ as the blazing center. That's God's plan. And what, and, and what Jesus is saying, that's what he's saying about this blind man. God's purpose in this man being born blind from birth was to display the works of God through him. God would allow, oh, I don't know if I could believe somebody. God would allow someone to be born blind and to be blind and to suffer as a beggar and be mocked and scorned. 
Yes, if the purpose was for the greatness of the glory of God to be displayed in him and through him. Let's explain that. God's purposes for these, for these things in your life have the final word. Not what you did, not what someone else did. What God did has the final word. There's no suffering, precious ones, outside God's redemptive purposes for it. Let me say it again. There is no suffering outside God's redemptive purposes for it. Suffering can only have ultimate meaning, though, in relation to a God who is completely sovereign and completely good and completely just. And that's what Jesus is saying, that the purpose of this blindness is to put the work of God on display. The purpose of any sorrow, the purpose of any suffering is to put the work of God on display through the work of Jesus. But here, this is where it really got me, and I I hope this will encourage your heart. For this truth to increasingly bring you comfort and peace and strength to follow God through your suffering and sorrow. These are those times where I just, I want to say, how many of you are going through a really bad time right now? Or... How many of you will tomorrow? I mean, it could, it's, it's going to get all of us. Most of the days of our lives, there are going to be so many different things we have to walk through. The key to this, though, is for us to increasingly believe that God and the salvation and new life he offers us in Christ is our most treasured possession. And that's why I would just stop to say, is that you? Are you adding sorrow to your sorrow because he's really not your most treasured possession? What you're discovering about this suffering is that you're your most treasured possession. Our ongoing problem, even after salvation, is thinking of ourselves and our rights and our comforts and our winning arguments or our being right or having the last word or being appreciated or thought highly of. We think of these things being our greatest treasures. I had the joy of going to go see Micah and and my son Micah, my daughter-in-law Marissa, and my grandgirl Adeline for a few days this week. And cutest thing happened. So Jan, Jan, and I got to say, honey, I'm just telling people, so... Right now, right now, Adeline's favorite is Janny. I get a lot of good, I get loving from her for sure. But Janny's the favorite, and, and Jan was holding Adeline, and I was coming, and, 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 and you know, and Adeline saw me coming, and she puts her head on Jan's shoulder, the cutest thing, and she puts her, <laughs> she does the Heisman pose, right? She's, she's stiff arming Papa, and she's saying, No, Papa, my Janny. My Jenny, Papa. And I said, no, Adeline, my Jenny. No, Papa. <laughs> she says, my Jenny. But then I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to twist it up on her a little bit. I'm going to say, okay, okay. Well, you know what? You're my Adeline. And Adeline says, no, Papa. My Adeline. <laughs> and God just used that to open my eyes to my heart. It's cute when Adeline tells Papa, my Adeline. It's not cute when Papa tells Jesus, my Papa. It's not cute. That's sinful. That's what's really messing my life up. The suffering and sorrow is not really the thing messing my life up. It's my self-centered responses to my suffering and sorrow. My Billy, Lord. No, no, not my Jesus right now. My Billy. That's what's hurting things. When Jesus becomes your most treasured possession, that's your foundation for dealing with every kind of suffering and sorrow. He's saying that the works of God has a worth that outweighs this man's blindness and the years he spent blind. That's the Christian story, that Jesus is better Jesus is better. God wants to give us grace to value the display of his works of love and justice and mercy in Christ and on the cross more than we value the, the, the ability to see. In fact, God wants us to value Christ and his life and his work more than life itself. For some reason, the printer, my 
the, my notes on the printer didn't connect, but so the, the, the notes are a little odd looking. But Psalm 63.3 says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Can you say that with the psalmist? I think that's a good prayer. Lord, I, I, I agree with that truth. I believe that truth. I'm not necessarily living in the good of that truth. Could you make that more true for me? I really want to say your steadfast, your steadfast love is better than my life. It's better than my being right and my getting my rights and my comfort. You're, you're, you're better than my life. You're better than my life. When we value Jesus and his work of salvation as our greatest treasure, God uses that to be an unshakable foundation to stand on in the sorrows and suffering of life. It gives us faith to call out to him. God, would you glorify your name by healing my body? It gives us faith to do that. And God often brings a healing. It's wonderful when he does. But God can also glorify his name, do his wonderful works in our lives without healing us. When Paul cried out three times for his thorn in the flesh to be healed, Jesus said, my grace is sufficient. The thorn didn't leave. Grace came. And his grace was sufficient. His power was made perfect in weakness. So he puts his work on display. Not by healing you, but by sustaining you. And him sustaining you is as much a miracle as him healing you. I'll tell you what, him sustaining, the miracle of his sustaining me in my trials, I think is more miraculous, and I need it more, because I tend to abuse the, the, the dramatic blessings of God. Oh, I, I'm healed, I feel better, and I trust less. That may not be you, but that's me. The blindness and the miracle and healing is for the glory of God. The thorn in the flesh and not being healed is for the but being miraculously sustained is by the glory, is for the glory of God. Why? Why do we say that? Is there anyone in this room who is a believer that has not experienced a miracle? If you're a believer. There's no believer who hasn't experienced a miracle. What am I talking about? Salvation. You see, you see how we, we tend to treasure other things even above that. I'm a child of God. My blind eyes see. My dark sins made whiter than, than snow. Washed away by the blood of Jesus. We are loved by God, called as a saint, transformed from slaves to sin to sons and daughters and living for eternity with him. I think one of the best examples of this is, is, is that God de demonstrating his marvelous works in our sorrow and suffering as Johnny Erickson taught, 50 years after she suffered the accident that left her a quadriplegic, she wrote a testimony in Gospel Coalition. She said this. Read this. Uh, don't read it out loud, but read along with me in your notes. The core of God's plan is to rescue me from sin and self. That's a great, that's a great line just right there. And to keep rescuing me. The Apostle Paul calls it the gospel by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. I'm in constant need of saving. My displaced hip and scoliosis are sheepdogs that constantly snap at my heels, driving me down the road to Calvary where, where oh again, such a line, where I die to the sins Jesus died for. Sure, I have a long way to go before I am who God destined me to be in glory, but thankfully my paralysis keeps pushing me to strive to reach for that heavenly prize. The process is difficult, but affliction isn't a killjoy. I don't think you could find a happier follower of Jesus than me. The more my paralysis helps me get disentangled from sin, the more joy bubbles up from within. Wow. So Jesus 
moves forward and he spits on the ground and he makes, he makes mud and he puts it on the blind man's eyes and it's done on the Sabbath. Why? Because Jesus was positioning his life to once again have an encounter with the Pharisees, experience the false accusations that he broke the Sabbath laws, shine the light on the Pharisees. But, but why? You might be going, uh, why, why the spitting in the mud and all of that? Well, that is supposed to, again, this is why having a biblical theology, a, 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 a theology of God's redemptive storyline from Genesis to Revelation is so important. How did God create man? He took dirt and he, and he breathed into it. Something came out of his mouth. He breathed in, into him. He, he spoke. Well, that's how God created man. Then man falls. Here's the son of God coming. And he's dealing with dirt. And he's showing us that he's come to bring a new creation and deliver us from the sin that was so besetting us. That's what's happening here. It's a great day to heal people on the Sabbath. It's a great day to heal people. It's supposed to be a day of rest. How many of us don't rest because of an illness? <laughs> we don't rest because of an illness. And that'd be a great day to be healed, right? To find rest for the body and healing of the Sabbath. Well, all this is done. There's that, 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 he goes to the pool of Siloam. It means sent. So get this. So the sent one, Jesus sends the blind man to the pool called Sent, where he would receive his sight, so that the blind man could be sent and reflect the light of Christ to the world. Where do I get that? It's the remainder of the chapter, and it, this is just a way fast flyover. Because that's our mission. If we've received sight, we're supposed to be reflectors of the light that we've received to reflect the light of Christ so that the blind can see. So Jesus says, he says, listen, as long as there's light, we've got to work while the light is shining because there's going to be a day when darkness comes, it won't be any more day time to work. He's speaking of his life before his crucifixion, but he's also speaking for our life as his disciples before his second coming. So as we conclude the sermon, notice how the spiritual side of the blind man gets clearer and clearer and how the hearts and blindness of the Pharisees gets worse and worse. Um, they, they close their eyes tighter and tighter at it. So here we go. How are you doing shining the light to your friends? Because that's the first people he comes across. Here's verses 8 through 12. He shines the light to his neighbors and to the others who saw him begging. He was shining the light. Who, who, who did this? How did you become, how did you become whole? From the very first moments of his salvation, he says, he says, a man, and his name is Jesus. And that was, that's a baby Christian evangelism, right? Baby Christian evangelism. But a baby Christian can be used evangelistically as much as a 70-year Christian. I, I was blind. A man named Jesus opened my eyes. How are you doing? Are you, listen, how is this man's baby steps of Christianity? How are you doing? You've been a Christian how many years? Are you freely sharing Jesus the way he's sharing Jesus? You don't have to be a seminary graduate. Listen to this man. This man is so freely. Why? Because he did the works of God in my life. He didn't allow, allow my sin to have the final word. He opened my blind eyes, and now I see. And I've got to tell people that. Why would we keep that to ourselves? Oh, God, help us. Help us be more like this guy. How are you doing with your neighbors? How are you doing? The people that pass by him regularly. How are you doing with your coworkers? How are you doing? Are, do, do, are you willing? Are you able? Are you looking for every opportunity to be able to tell the difference Jesus has made in your life? And then he goes and he has to stand against those who would resist Jesus. And that's verses 13 through 17. And, he, and, and now they're confronting him. How did you receive your sight? Well, this, he cannot be from God because he broke the Sabbath. And other people are saying, well, I don't think a sinner can do what he's doing. How are you, gonna, how are you shining the light to those you know will resist it? Sometimes I think we do a disservice to people by assuming we know how they're going to respond. That's, could we call that self-righteous? Maybe they've resisted you in the past. But isn't it a little presumptuous to say, 
I'm not going to share with them anymore because they resisted me five years ago. And they'll probably resist me again. Who, who opens up blind eyes, Jesus or you? Give more credit to Jesus than you've been given him. So he resists, he, he, he goes to those who resist him. And then verses 24 through 34, or 18 through 23, the light of this man's life is now affecting his parents' life. The Pharisees bring in the parents and don't get down on the parents too much. I say again, it was, it's very easy to go, oh, can't believe these parents aren't taking a stand for their son. These parents have been beaten down by the religious leaders of the time. He's growing up. They're growing more guilt. I mean, they've been told it's their sin that made their son this way. So they're already suspicious of self-righteous legalistic leadership. And now that leadership says, if you don't do things our way, we're throwing you out of the synagogue, which is essentially, we're going to count you as dead. You won't be able to buy anything in those parts. No one will speak to you in these parts. You may as well have leprosy. That's what's happening with these parents. So the parents just say, talk to our son. He, yes, he can see. At least they said that. And he was blind. And now, full-blown courage of how, how God is just maturing so quickly, this, this young, newly seeing man. And he says to these resisting Pharisees, they're, they're telling him to swear an oath, call Jesus a sinner. And he, he says, I, I can't say that he's a sinner. All I can say is, I was once blind, but now I see. Wow. Do people see that difference in your life? God wants to them to see a difference in our lives. The gospel will save them, but, but a changing life, not a changed life like you're perfect, a changing life is a part of the grace that God gives to unbelievers to see. And they just get hostile. And they get so mad at that man. They call him, you're the worst of sinners. Listen, until, for as long as the Lord lets me serve in this church, we are going to seek to train pastors to see themselves as the worst sinners they know in this church. Too often, people come to church and pastors are put up on this pedestal as though they're somehow better than the people and they, and they seem to preach down to people. You know what? I hope, I hope really Sunday after Sunday you, you see us actually preaching up to you. We're, we're the worst sinners we know. We found salvation in Jesus by his grace alone. And we want to serve that up to you. How should somebody who really believes they're the worst sinner they know, shouldn't, they then, shouldn't that affect the way you treat other people? Shouldn't that affect the way then you look at other people and say, listen... You're safe with me because I'm the worst sinner I know. Now, how can I serve you? How can I serve Jesus up to you? How can I serve the gospel up to you? And they're saying, you're the worst sinner ever. You're going to hell and you're excommunicated from the synagogue. And they cast him out. And isn't it good? You're going to learn this next week. Isn't it so good that the good shepherd never casts out his people? And the world rejected him, but Jesus embraces him. And he gets to the clearest vision in this story at this point. And remember, he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And that was from Daniel. It was a divine expression that a fully God, fully man person would come to save sinners from the punishment they deserve. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He said, oh. I, I, show him to me, Lord. Show him to me. And Jesus says, you're, you're looking at him. It's, it's me. It's me. And he falls on his face. And he worships him. So he's seeing pretty clearly, isn't he, as the time goes on and the Pharisees just, they close their eyes more tightly as the light gets brighter. And that's the end of it, saying, now how are you doing? How are you doing? Do you think you see things clearly? 
How about in your marriage recently? Think about your most recent or most frequent argument. How much of the problem is that you think you see it all clearly? And you're not open to where you could be wrong. See, that's how this thing whittles down into real life, doesn't it? It starts, the spirit starts with us. Do we, do we think just because we've been a Christian 15 years that I pretty much have this? I, t- I talked to someone a couple years ago who said, yeah, I became a Christian. I read through the Bible in a year. And so I really, I don't need to read the Bible. And I pretty much know the story. <sighs> Blind. He's, he thinks he sees. And he's blinder than a bat. Isn't it great that God comes and delivers us from Adam-patterned blindness. He sends Jesus to come to show us, I know you can't see. Trust me. I died for you. I'll forgive you. Let me open your eyes. Let's stand. Would you stand? Stephen, I wish we could sing, but uh, I'm making life hard on our children's ministry workers. Um, would you express your... Pre- yeah, here's, and you can totally say this. Listen, I'm sorry Billy preaches so long. Uh, I'm sorry that you had to spend more time <laughs> with my kids. Um, make it harder on you. Uh, but I, I, I don't want to do that. They, they serve our church so well. And, uh, and they give up themselves. And then, and then just there's just so much time that kids can... And, uh, can do that so oh Lord for those of us who know you as Lord and Savior we want to say thank you Jesus it wasn't for any works of righteousness that it's, it's, it, we, it, we didn't discover we were blind and, and looked for the best eye doctor You came and opened our eyes. We didn't deserve that. And you graciously opened our eyes to behold the greatest vision of beauty any human heart or one day human eye could ever see. And that's the beauty and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God, I think all of us in here would, would say, we want, we want to grow in esteeming Jesus as our greatest treasure. We want to see you that way, Lord. We, we want to see that the works of God are being put on display in our lives and through our lives in our suffering and sorrows. And we can believe that because you cured us from the worst suffering and sorrow when Christ died for our sins and opened our eyes to believe in him. So help us download that story into every situation everyone's facing. That we know that you're working the works of God in our hard times now because you did the biggest thing we needed you to do when you died on the cross. So help us download that into everything, every marriage, every parenting, every job situation, every mistake made, every sin committed. Oh God, that you're working and you're working and you're purposing and you're purposing and your plans will prevail. God, would would you show us, help us to be open to our blind spots. Oh, please, we don't want to think we... Lord, help us, help us to be open in, into the scriptures. Help, show us things that we haven't understood correctly or maybe saw incorrectly and help us to admit where we were wrong and help us to grow. We want to grow. Help us to be humble because it's probably the people seeking humility that see the clearest. And Lord, like this, this man who was healed... Help us to shine the light of Jesus every step we take in every area of our lives so that other blind people could see the beauty of Jesus too. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I I just, before I give you the benediction, the 
You know, I got a question. This was so interesting, a question from, uh, I think the person had visited once or twice, and they said, I have two questions for you. And I said, okay. First question is, since you've been a Christian, and even more so as a pastor, have you, have you in your Christian life come to conclude that you believed something incorrectly and you preached something incorrectly? Great question. It's a great question. That's a good question for a new tender to ask. And I said, yeah, and I gave him some examples. And they said, are you of a position in your heart now that if you, if you in your studies, that God shows you that you believed something or taught something incorrectly in the future, will you admit that? And I said, well, by God's grace, I will. I've done it in the past, and I hope I'll do it in the future. We just really, we prize ourselves in being rational people. We think that, you know, that we, we, we just will honestly look at situations and evaluate them and, and admit where we're wrong and, and, and do what's right. And I don't know about you. I think I'm, I thank God for rational thinking, but there's also rationalizing, which is really just saying, I'm going to do everything I can to keep admitting that I'm right keep believing that my view is right. Oh God, keep us from that. Keep us from that. Paul says in Ephesians 1, this is how we feel about you as leaders. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.